Hello, I'm Brad. And I'm Jason. You are listening to Dice, Dice in, in My Mind. You might notice that I am not Brad. Indeed, it took 68 episodes for this to happen, but I suppose it was inevitable. Brad and I, this week, simply could not navigate a mutually feasible time for us to complete the recording of this episode. As I am the one with a typically more flexible schedule, it's just me this time. But I think that'll be okay because I'm going to keep it short. We are really pleased to bring you, in a moment, our chat with Aaron McDonald. Uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald is just a fascinating individual. And what's really neat is that she is seemingly as delightful of a person, of an individual, as she is fascinating as a scholar, as a scientist, as the, uh, in some ways, Sorcerer Supreme of Trectum. I'm not sure if those mixed metaphors work, but go with me. About a year and a half ago, when Brad and I got really serious about beginning this podcast, Dyson Mind, we had agreed really from the beginning that we wanted to explore the meaning of life through the lens of RPGs. And as we've said on numerous occasions across, well, across so so many 68 episodes, uh, we see that discussion as bimodal, as reciprocal. We often ask ourselves and one another uh, in our conversations outside of our recordings, how can life inform RPGs? And how can RPGs inform life? And I'm taking some uh, recording license, if you will, and I am using the term RPG to also include all of the adjacent creative endeavors. For example, Star Trek is not, of course, a role-playing game, although Star Trek Adventures is and is one of the very best out there. But Star Trek itself has a 56-year history of novelty, of social commentary, of wonderful technology, of neat character development, and so on. But something fairly unique further to Star Trek is that it has always doubled down on science and the importance of science. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, well, later on, at least, when we get to the GM corner. Star Trek has always been informed by science. Now, sometimes it's gone better than others. Sometimes it's gone better than others. Let's be honest. Uh, the sequence in Star Trek Nemesis, when the Enterprise E pulls out of its impact with the scimitar, uh, left the inner physicist in me cringing in the theater because that's not how two masses work in space. But regardless, 
for the most part, Star Trek has always been way out ahead. And one of the reasons is because it, especially these days, hires people like Aaron, like Dr. Aaron McDonald, to advise them on the science. Because let's face it, I mean, Star Trek is one of the ways that some people get a better understanding of the world. How cool is that? So given that it's just me and we don't have Brad with us for this episode, uh, I'm going to put a stop to myself and let's get into our interview. We think you're going to enjoy it. Dr. Aaron McDonald holds a PhD in astrophysics and is a tattooed one-woman STEM career panel with recognition as a researcher, speaker, engineer, and consultant before her current career. She lives in Los Angeles working now as a writer and producer and is currently the science consultant for the entire Star Trek franchise. She is available for staff writing positions, consulting, and freelance work. Well, Aaron, it is just a thrill to finally meet you. We've been talking, looking forward to talking to you for for so long because, as we were talking about just before we hit record, you might truly have the coolest job right now <laughs> on the planet, which is really saying something. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And yes, like, believe me, I I know <laughs> how special this job is. It's uh, it's something I'm really honored and something I take really seriously. Well, and I'll say so for those who possibly don't already know, especially if they just like fast forwarded over your bio, you are <laughs> the science consultant for all of Star Trek. I, I realize there are some others who assist from time to time as specialists, but this is your show. I, maybe the wrong word. This is your deal, though. I mean, you you run this part of the process, yes? Yeah, and, you know, it kind of came about uh, a little organically. We started, I started along with Professor Mohammed Noor, who's one of those, yeah. as you mentioned, mm -hmm. like a specialist who kind of comes on as needed. Um, we got hired for Star Trek Discovery Season 3 to help mm -hmm. with the story area of the burn and then like one specific episode. And mm -hmm. then for me, you know, being in L.A., being interested in science consulting, wanting to work more in the entertainment industry, I was able to kind of have that freedom to pursue that uh, venue a little bit more. And with all of the shows that Star Trek was onboarding at the time, mm -hmm. we kind of like it made sense to just have an in-house yeah. science consultant yeah. because you don't with all of these shows sort of operating independently. A lot of what my job is, is like consolidating star dates and making sure, you know, yeah. how we talk about the transporter in one show is consistent with how we talk about it in another show. All of this little sort of like Star Trek technical canon is uh maintained across all of these shows and all of that's your wheelhouse now yeah wow yeah. i didn't realize no that. pressure <laughs> yeah no <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what I, so, I mean we obviously we we could just i mean brad and i could just talk trek with you for the next several weeks but i'm here for it <laughs> I, I mean we appreciate that but but the reality is i mean you've talked about that with a lot of wonderful outlets. Um, I heard the interview with the two of you on um, Michael Wong's podcast, What Strange New Worlds, which yeah. was just a delight to listen to, right? But we're really curious of, 
of, I mean, come on, because it's more than just, well, it's funny it worked out this way. I mean, you've got a PhD in gravitational astrophysics, yes? Yes, that's correct. And you and you you actually worked on LIGO? I did. That was that's what amazing. I did my whole PhD and then a couple years, one postdoc after my PhD was with the yeah, the LIGO laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory, which at the time, I mean, I left the collaboration in 2014. That's when I left yeah. kind yeah. of standard research. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, when I um, I left LIGO yeah. and then not even it was less than a year that they made their Nobel Prize winning discussion. So was I when I was in gravitational waves, right. it was like fringe theoretical. Oh, like, <laughs> very. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, when the NSF has a press conference and spends the first half an hour defending their decision to fund something that was yeah. a little iffy. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, yeah, that was like, that summarizes my academic life of being like, no, no, I promise. We know we've been doing it for 20 years, but like, we're really close guys. Just give us a little more chance. And That's... yeah, it, the fact that they did make the detection and yeah, then went on to win the Nobel prize in physics for it is just phenomenal. It's really oh, cool. And, I mean, the world will never be, I, I remember I had, I had not to make this about me, but I had class just a couple nights later. And I mean, I'm, I was teaching a bunch of experiential education students, a course in mind and nature, right? Not exactly gravitational waves. And I basically just talked about the finding for the first 15 awesome. minutes to give them a sense of like, this is what's happening. And this is why this all matters, right? It's like mind blowing yeah. stuff. And it was, what was interesting working in it too, was the fact that like, it was I think the only uh, I'm just speaking my own opinion here, so I might yeah. be missing something. But um, the only other sort of major collaboration that was doing similar stuff was really CERN, you know, right. and so there is there wasn't a lot of these huge multiple almost thousands of people working yeah. on a single Right. detection at the time to the extent that we actually had a sociologist in LIGO who studied our behavior. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And the book came yeah. out of that, didn't it? Yes, it's true. Yeah, he's written a couple books over the years. I okay. forget his name, but we can yeah. we can add it as needed. But um, yeah, that uh, he basically just studied how a collaboration of a thousand people across 50 plus institutions on the cusp of a Nobel Prize detection uh, mm -hmm. behave with one another. <laughs> That's well, I there mean, are there, stories the, there. <laughs> the, yeah, well, the so, well, it turns out that stories that are, stories that know. aren't published are yeah. stories that aren't published. No, he he I mean, that was his job was to, like, tell right. those stories. Um, yeah. And, and it, it did add a level of like anxiety to those meetings knowing oh, that there was a sociologist like they're taking notes as you know people are having meltdowns terrible. and yelling at each other and like it was it was chaos because even though I wasn't there for the detection I was there in initial LIGO it was in 2010 when yeah. they took the detector offline to upgrade it which then initial which then led on to actually yeah. making the detection um they did fake signal injections Right. And we knew that they did that. And a lot mm. of it was just proof of concept because the mm. initial LIGO was very, um, the probability of detecting something was very, very low, but it was a proof of concept. And so we wanted to make sure that when we saw something, mm. we kind of had our processes down for determining what it was, how to write the paper to get that all done. And so what we did in LIGO, and this made it into articles and into his book as well, was mm. um, 
we wrote the paper to the point that it would be sent to journals before the board would tell us if the signal was fake or not. And <laughs> oh, that's awful. Brutal, and it was one because the probability was so low that we all were like, "This is this is it's what they're." We knew that they were doing this. Like, yeah. I, we're sure it's fake. We're sure it's fake. But at the same time, we're not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> but that's like a triple blind design. Yeah. I mean, that's oh my yeah. god. Okay, so I have to yeah. before we before we kind of veer a bit. I've Sorry, got to ask that was you. A tangent. Oh, yeah. oh my god, no, no. Before we veer, that, I've got to ask your professional like take or or just personal take because to me it's it's of the same ilk although although obviously a, a fundamentally different technology and approach um the eht the event horizon telescope and and yeah. right the the m87 and now our our own what sagittarius a, a star in our galaxy i mean as someone who is so close to this and worked on ligo to see right essentially essentially photographs of black holes. I mean, I never in my lifetime thought we'd approach that. What's that like for you? It's amazing. I mean, you can't see it, but I do have a tattoo of the first one in M87 because nice. that to be able to actually see the event horizon of a black hole, because people, I think there's a little bit of a misconception that, you know, people have seen black holes in the past. Like we've detected black holes mm -hmm. primarily with the Chandra Observatory mm -hmm. detecting in x-rays. But what we're detecting is the glow of uh, material as it's falling into the black hole. It's emitting primarily in x-rays. But what the Event Horizon Telescope was able to do is actually see the event horizon. So they're picking up the glow, they're picking up that energy, but they're able to, using telescopes all over the world as if they're different like pixels almost is kind of how they were doing it okay that they then could combine that together and actually see the edge of the black hole is just i mean it's so oh cool. it is it's my i'm i'm hoping unrealistically optimistically that that once the james webb space telescope demonstrates how well it can function orbiting where it's orbiting that will eventually finally get an interferometer that's at the Lagrangian points and yeah. just have crazy resolution, but right. that might not be realistic. I don't know. I, you know, I'm sure there's people doing that. I mean, that was one of the goals with, it wasn't LIGO, but there's a sort oh, of counterpart right. study called LISA that mm -hmm. is to put a laser interferometer in one of the Lagrange points that orbits behind Earth um, to be exactly that, to detect very low frequency gravitational waves. So like a totally different source of gravitational waves, but same concept. Yeah. So, so I mean, cool. How, how do you even get here? Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess more importantly, so uh, back to you. Um <laughs> were like as a kid were you always headed in a scientific yeah. inquiry kind of you know like were you always going to probably be a scientist how did that happen <laughs> um you know it's a good question i i do think that all kids are innately scientists yes, absolutely. Uh, it's because that's how we become human right? right we explore we test we yeah, verify <laughs> we we retest um as much as you can and uh, you know it only takes one test to know that the stove is hot <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> but um and and i do think too all kids i worked in museums after i left academia that yeah. uh everyone's into space and dinosaurs that's like so the thing, yeah. right yeah. like you hit a point in your childhood where it's either or both and i was into both 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just fascinated by both space and dinosaurs that I wanted to, I didn't even really necessarily think about it as a career in terms yeah. of like yeah. becoming a professor or yeah. being a long-term researcher. I just, as I moved through sort of into my high school and looking at university, I was just thinking that it was such such a cool idea that I could go to a university and just study space for four years. And that's right. it. like that. And so that's kind of what drove me and what made me want to become a scientist was honestly through film and television, because mm-hmm. uh, I loved the X-Files, um, the early days of it. <laughs> I wasn't I allowed to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like because I was the only one in my household who could work the VHS programmer. So I could like actually oh, program hilarious. it to record the X-Files oh and then I would watch it in secret. Um, <laughs> I loved Dana Scully. I was a little redheaded kid and she was just awesome. She fought aliens with science. Like she was everything I wanted to be. And then concurrently, you know, Contact came out. Oh, <laughs> my oh. favorite movie. Oh. Yeah, yeah, which also celebrated like its 25th anniversary this year, which is please in- don't. I, none of us need to know. That. I know <laughs> we could that, we could we could end up going. Yeah, none of us need to know. I have quoted Ellie. All, we could talk for that. For, yeah, yeah, so many times to my girls. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, but she but she was huge oh, and it hit me yeah. right at the right age. Like it hit me yeah. right at that correct age where mm-hmm. I saw I had these two almost mentors at that age between Dana Scully and Dr. Ellie Arroway, Dr. <laughs> Dana Scully and Dr. Ellie Arroway, that I would look That's at them awesome. and I would be like, I want to do that. I want to do what they're doing. That looks really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And um, so space just kind of embedded itself. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, Mm -hmm. which has a huge undergraduate research program that I was able to do radio astronomy research while I was an undergraduate. Wow. And I actually got the opportunity in my senior year to go to Green Bank Telescope, which is the largest movable radio telescope in the world. And the moment I'm sitting in that control control room, scared out of my mind, right? Like, what am I doing? This is way out of my depths. And I put it in and I've got great, everyone's looking over my shoulder. They're making sure it's fine. I'm feeling good. I hit enter and oh. that old telescope starts moving. All I could think of was contact. I was like, oh. I need it. I'm- that this is it <laughs> for for listeners who aren't familiar with green bank you gotta you, you have to pause and google it and and find a photo that gives you a sense of the size yeah it's crazy you it's in i believe it's technically in west virginia it's in the appalachians oh. um but you as you're driving to it you're going over these green hills and you're in these back roads you've gone off the interstate a long time ago and then you kind of come to the crest of a hill and you see this telescope but it just looks like a satellite dish that someone might have in their backyard yeah and then you keep but then you keep driving and it says, you know, you're still 45 minutes or an hour away. And you're like, Oh my, oh my God, God. over another, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's about the size of a football stadium <laughs> and it just blows your mind. It blows your mind. It's crazy. And yeah. it's in, um, it's in, this is just me geeking a little bit, but uh, Green Bay, it's in a radio quiet zone, right? Yeah, so that that adds a whole other layer to the experience because in the town Green Bank, 
um, you can't have any electronics because it interferes with the telescope. And indeed, actually, when I first kind of did my orientation, you know, the, the telescope technician is kind of walking me through stuff and he's showing me the sort of baseline spectra that the telescope's picking up. And then you saw this blip hit the screen and he was like, someone took a digital camera on. Like someone oh, just took a picture with oh a digital camera. Because it just, Sensitive? it was that. Yep, it was so that the- and that fast of a reaction that like you any any interaction you have with electronics has to be inside a faraday cage um okay so i'm gonna do it i'm assuming your car doesn't look as cool as i think it would have to i mean you must only be allowed to approach i mean like this all must be scheduled then to come to approach the telescope yeah yeah and yeah there's very clear protocols and like the dorms where you stay are far away from the telescope and like but even then you know the Again, you have to, when I was there, it was probably 20 years ago that, you know, you had to have very particular, um, you know, internet access, like having wired versus wireless and cell phones had to be handled in a certain way. So I can't even imagine what it looks like now. Um, But there were very, very strict protocols. And so people who, this is what's kind of adds to the character of Green Bank is that people who think that they are affected by electromagnetic radiation flock to green bank because there is minimal interaction so you have this whole cohort of people in the town who kind of have this philosophy of like no electronics no radiation whatsoever and they live there it's really interesting it's really interesting and then you're like yeah i'm going up the hill to el radar and doing yeah right And it's, you know, and observing as well as just it's a whole its own little unique world that you you become nocturnal. You know, it's it's so bizarre, but it was a really great. I'm very grateful for that experience because it was really fascinating. Okay, so Boulder to Green Bank to, I mean, stuff and then LIGO. I mean, you can you can see a progression, but then. I mean, LIGO to okay. I'm going to come back to the Gorn because of what you said earlier, but LIGO, <laughs> okay. LIGO to, to Star Trek, that's yeah. a bit of a diversion. Yes. There's a lot of steps in between there. So, yeah. So I, I left academia, you know, for people who might not be familiar with sort of the academic world and life, um, mm. it's not easy. It's, and you have to really want it. If you want to become a professor, if you want yeah. a permanent job in academia, you have to really want it. And because I went into doing my PhD even mm. with just thinking like, this is pretty cool and I'd like to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As I was sort of ending my PhD, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do this forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm seeing the people who are spending the next 10 years after your PhD on temporary contracts, oh, moving yeah. all over the world. Like it's a really rough life. And now, I mean, thankfully, like my peers are at the point in their career who stayed in academia that they are getting settled. And those people who did want it, you know, they were able to push through that, but it just wasn't for me. So I left academia in the more stricter sense. Mm -hmm. And I went into teaching um, still at the university level, but I taught at community college as an adjunct Mm -hmm. professor. And I taught as a um, public outreach sort of, it was like educator slash performer at a science museum. And I loved that. I Mm -hmm. loved teaching that I will say, I mean, we might come back to this later, but I will say that like working at the science museum is probably what honed my science communication skills the most. Really? 
because yeah, with my degree, <laughs> the museum looked at my resume and they were like, okay, you're going to live in the space area. <laughs> and you're there like three or four days a week, all day, just oh. answering questions. So you're looking at seven or eight hours a day, nonstop, three or four days a week, mm -hmm. just fielding questions and doing performances, you know, like where they do the more scripted shows and things mm -hmm. like that. Like mm -hmm. look at liquid nitrogen and all this fun stuff. Um, but that was where it was like, I became confident in saying when I don't know something, that was where I became confident in like reading an audience if I had lost them, because you're going to talk to people across the spectrum of like a five-year-old who happens to know everything about black holes <laughs> in a way that you're like, this should not, there's no way you do. And then like, maybe, you know, a, you, a, like a, I'm using my mom as an example, but like a retired librarian who didn't take yeah. science since yeah. the 1960s, who was like, okay, so tell me why, like, I know that the earth is round and I know it goes around the sun, but can you explain why the sun rises and the sun sets? Which is a real question I have to explain to my mom on like a biannual basis. Wow. <laughs> so you get you get used to this and yeah. you start to know what people are interested in like what the zeitgeist is like and yeah. how uh how to keep people engaged and it, like i said before and most importantly when you've lost people when you're trying to explain yeah. something so wow. um so i did that um unfortunately the adjunct in museum life did not pay the bills no, no. so i was overworked i was also working at starbucks at like 4 30 in the morning for like oh five hours a day mm -hmm. just to pay the bills um so i started looking at other options i got into aerospace engineering working as a technical advisor um oh. that was on federal contracts and i really enjoyed that but i really missed the public teaching, the public engagement, mm -hmm. and the science classes. Yeah. So at this time, concurrently, I also go to sci-fi conventions. I love sci-fi conventions. I'm a huge nerd. I love Star Trek. I love all this stuff. And Dragon Con was one of the conventions that I went to first. And it's in Atlanta every year. Mm -hmm. And what's unique about Dragon Con, and a couple other conventions have emulated this since then, but they have very specific tracks that program the whole weekend. Okay. So they have like a Star Trek track, a Lord of the Rings track. Like they'll they'll have like okay. costuming track, anime, mm. like oh, robotics, cool. all these mm. other things that are programmed mm. for the whole weekend. Nice. And they had they have both a space track and a science track. And the oh. space track is very scientific. Like there are people oh. who have lifetime passes to Dragon Con that go and sit in the space track all weekend and just listen to professional talks from people from JPL, from NASA, from like oh, wow. ESA, like all these other things just to hear what's going on in the space industry. So that's where I kind of got my start. As I was, mm. you know, filtering out of academia, I started speaking, giving talks on gravitational waves and gamma ray bursts and very technical talks. But me being me, <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I want to be in the track track and I want to be in the video game track and I want to do all this other stuff. And and so I started proposing talks after, you know, a couple of years of the physics of Star Trek. Yeah. Or like science of mass effect and all of these other things. And um, and those were hugely popular. And this was at a time yeah. where conventions were just exploding. Like every okay. major city has conventions now. And so I was proposing these talks at all these other cons just on my own dime wanting to go wow. and give. And um, 
And so that was going on as I'm working as an aerospace engineer. I found myself moving to Los Angeles, which I always wanted to do. Um, I always wanted to work somewhat in the TV and film industry as well. And um, because I had been to all these conventions for so long, I had a little bit of a network of creatives, like people mm -hmm. who are actors mm -hmm. or writers. We would see each other at the same conventions and everything. Yeah. And they started to connect me to friends who were working on science fiction and just saying like, hey, they'd really like to use a science advisor and you know they'd like to ask you a couple questions so I got used to that process um and then really Star Trek kind of was born out of both of those avenues the first thing was it was a friend of a friend who was working for CBS who kind of put me in touch with them to go give my physics of Star Trek talks at their licensed events nice um and again, CBS was like, oh, wow, these are really popular. <laughs> like, we should do more of these. And so I was giving talks on their cruise and, you know, year after year doing this <laughs> stuff. Um, and then uh, only a short time after that was when Michelle Paradise took over Star Trek Discovery. And then mm -hmm. that's when she was looking for a science advisor. So that's that's kind of sorry. That's I, 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 no, I that's wonderful. Journey, no, this but, is yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really it really because I mean the the work shows as I mean in discovery, um I mean the science shows. I mean it's still Star Trek. And don't don't even get me started on Star Trek Nemesis and the physics that they got wrong in that show. But that's because that still bothers me to my core. But I mean, Discovery really started to get science right and and you see that now as well with strange new worlds right you there is a even prodigy i mean you you can i think as a scientist you can see the difference even from like tng which i will always be a fan of right um you you can see the difference there's an intentional effort as a fan i think that's palpable yeah yeah no thank you i think What's interesting about my role is that every show uses me slightly differently. So like you mentioned Prodigy, yes, we try to get the science right. And I love like the way that Prodigy kind of introduced itself to the world. You know, it had like that two part season opener that people were like, this is just like another franchise that starts with a star. <laughs> and and, uh, and that was really, but it was trying to draw in kids who do watch that yeah, and they're more absolutely. familiar with those stories. And then it was like, boom no we're star trek like in episode three where they are ended up in the gravitational well of a binary red giant white dwarf star system and you're and like it's oh, a show no, for kids i'm like it's oh, a kid show there's yeah. hope for society yet yeah yeah, yeah. and oh my God. so with with prodigy one of the things i do is it's not just making sure the science is right but mm -hmm. um but also being an advisor more as a stem educator that, you know, we have a target audience for kids. How do you engage them? How do you catch those kids who are like little Aaron, you know, who's interested in space and right. wanting to right. find people on TV that I want to be? And how do yeah. you write characters like yeah. that? And how do you draw those kids in? Brad, Brad, you had noticed something on, on Aaron's website. Aaron, you're not just obviously passionate about STEM, but you've got some interest in STEAM as well, yes? Yeah? STEAM, yeah. Yeah, in in what's I mean, yes, in general, absolutely. Yeah. But was there something specific that stood out? <clears throat> it just it's just for from my perspective, I'm not the scientist per se. I'm the armchair scientist. Yeah. Um, but to see, you know, discussions like you as an educator talking about mm. science, technology, arts, yeah. so important. Um, yeah. You know, and I and I am I have 
you know, my background is in arts originally, mm-hmm. um, thus hiding all the music stuff in the background. <laughs> but, um, but I just, and especially for those of us who, you know, for Jason, and I have kids, gr- you know, growing up and seeing and having that like prodigy as an example, right. um, you obviously have a passion in that realm and you just were talking about it just based off of the various directions that you've wanted to go. Even, you know, talking about mass effect, Jason probably doesn't even know what that is, but I know um, of it, but I've J- never that's not a, si- that's, a, that's, I, a, not a that's not a, that's not a theorem, Jason. It's a game. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me too many questions about mass effect. Cause I will take up the entire time. talking about it. <laughs> My favorite video game series of all time. And oh, I wow. will never shut up about it, but um. Yeah, I I think the acronym STEAM, where we include arts Mm. into STEM, is so important. And especially, you know, I kind of it's it's hard to kind of talk about my career because so much stuff happened in parallel. But while I was starting to give these science convention talks was while I was still teaching. And so I found that using science fiction as examples for my students was so beneficial just to give them a reference point. So it's like, for example, you know, I'd be talking about the Kepler system that the exoplanet system that they discovered that mm-hmm. is a planet going around two suns. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, yeah, I mean, it's like tattooing, right? And the whole class is like, wait, what? <laughs> tattooing? <laughs> I know tattooing. And then they start asking questions like, well, is it like a desert planet? Like, is there life on there? Could there be life on there? Like, what That's would the great. suns look like? Would they look the same? And for someone who's teaching astronomy 101, that's what you want your students to start doing. You want them to just start thinking critically and you want them to start asking questions like that. And so because they had that reference point of tattooing, like even though it's fictional, it ignited the scientific part of their brain that we were trying to prod that is sometimes very difficult to. And so I really, I mean, obviously now, especially, but I've always seen the value. And that was one of those seminal points where I really realized how valuable fiction and science fiction is as a teaching tool. And that's something kind of I've always pursued. And, and I want to, I'm going to, here's where Brad goes off on a tangent because, (laughs) um, you know, I saw in, and obviously Jason, I did a little research beforehand, but I saw in some of the notes and information, I saw Voltron. Yeah, that's right. And and as a kid who grew up grew up with both Voltrons sitting on his desk, um, I have to ask about that and how you and and obviously I know that we could probably spend a whole hour talking, or I could spend a whole hour yeah. talking about Voltron. But um, sorry, Jace. No, no, I'm, that's, I'm, that's good because I wasn't going to get there. That's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to ask about that because when I saw that, I was you know I lit up. So. I love that. So that was actually from the reboot, this Voltron Legendary mm-hmm. Defenders on Netflix. Um, I was watching it as a fan of Voltron and just as wanting to watch the show. And I'm watching it and I'm like, wait, what did you just say? Because <laughs> that show had so much accurate space-time physics in it oh, wow. that blew my mind. I mean, the way that they talked about uh, their version of faster than light travel, where they're sort of creating these artificially generated wormholes, the way that they talked about um, 
even like they had an episode where they all like end up shrinking down super small, you know, like Gulliver travel style. And then they're like, well, how we can get out of this is if we find a way to expand the space in between in the gluon space between our atoms. And I'm like, well, yeah, that actually would be a good solution <laughs> to this. And and then they actually also had, I know this appears in written science fiction more than television, but it's very rare in film and TV they actually acknowledge time dilation that happens when you're traveling at high speeds. They have a whole episode where they miss an event because they accidentally screwed up their time dilation calculations when they were trying to get there. And I'm watching this. I'm like, what the hell? And then they even had a moment where they talked about the gravitational waves emanating from a neutron star stuck in the uh, Lagrange point between two binary black hole systems. Oh, like that's that was hardcore. said out loud in Voltron Legendary Defender. <laughs> it blew my mind. So yeah, I mean, I... And it's such a niche audience, too. And it's one of those. That's why I love continuing to give talks at sci-fi conventions, because you just get like the Voltron audience. And then you're like, all right, we're going to talk about science in this show. And there's so much to talk about. It's so fun. So I'm so glad you noticed that. <laughs> yeah, Voltron. And, and I've watched Jason. You're going to have to put that on your list now. Seriously. It is I, a, that, you know, it's. You know. I wish there was good Trek on TV to take my time, but since there's not, <laughs> I'll just, no. Yeah. Yeah. Make fun if you want. Yeah. You, you know, one of the things too, um, since we're talking about, about media and obviously with Star mm -hmm. Trek and all that, you've been working on, you know, video production and all that, even mm -hmm. outside of the stuff you're doing with Star wow. Trek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's been really fun for me, you know, leaving um, the aerospace industry, my role really there. And I think where I succeeded in that industry was as a manager, as like a mm -hmm. program manager, yeah. doing dealing with these big projects, high budget, being the big picture person who hires all the people who have the specialities like that was what I really enjoyed. And I think that was something that I was really good at. And um, when I started moving more into film and television, I noticed like these producer roles really fit. That's my background. Like that's what I'm interested okay. in. Ooh. And it was so funny because I kind of had this epiphany. And then I look back on my life and um, I mentioned the space and dinosaurs was like a thing mm -hmm. that I was super mm -hmm. into. Um, Jurassic Park was another film that was very big at my time. Mm -hmm. And I watched... If people remember this, it was released in a special edition with the film on one VHS and the other VHS was behind the scenes of Jurassic Park. Oh. And I watched that to death. Nice. And one of the people that I caught my eye in that docu documentary was Kathleen Kennedy. She was a producer yeah. on oh. Jurassic Park. And I saw her do her thing in her pantsuit ordering stuff around, making sure this film happened, you know, doing amazing things that I was always like, she seems kind of cool. Like that seems like a cool job. Yeah. I forget it for 20 plus years. Yeah. And then I end up back in the industry and realizing that the producer's job is actually something I have a very good skill set for. It's something yeah. I'm really good at. And so my, I met my best friend, Mary Chifo, through Star Trek Discovery. She played Chancellor Laurel in the first yep. two seasons. Yep. Um, her and I met at conventions. We didn't overlap working on Star Trek, but we met at conventions. And I was on a walk with my now husband and her and her girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And we were 
kind of, you know, we all work in the industry and we're kind of lamenting like just the frustration, right? There's so much frustration of being that like on the cusp that we're doing a lot of work, we're working regularly, but we're wanting more opportunities. And Mary and I were kind of like, well, why don't we just create those opportunities? Like mm-hmm. I just started my own company to try to manage all my consulting stuff. So mm-hmm. now I have this corporate umbrella that I can yeah. at least operate under and let's make a movie. Like let's nice. figure out how to do it. None of us went to film school. So this was going to be our film school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it was like looking around, it was like, we're very, we're well connected at this point in our career in this industry. We know a lot of people who are very capable, who are right also on the cusp of just getting their big break. So let's give everyone some work, you know, like let's just bring all these cool people together and and put a story together. And so her girlfriend, Maddie Goff, had written this feature film that Mm. featured a bunch of scientists that were stuck in this time loop. And we kind of thought about what we wanted to do. And so we condensed it down into a two-hander. So it's just two characters. And they're stuck in a time loop. And it's about a 30-minute short film. And we made it this year. And that, I mean, we had this conversation nine months ago. And, like, we literally just delivered it to be printed for film production to send out to festivals. So Oh, that's awesome. uh, Yeah. I'm really, really proud of it. And it was such a good learning experience for us. I mean, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. But we did it right, you know, and we hired, we spent the money to really hire very capable people and to give them that opportunity. I'm very proud of the fact that like our behind the scenes crew was almost 60% women, 10% non-binary. It was a huge LGBTQ energy on the set. Like Mm -hmm. it was just a really unique film set that I think gave an opportunity to a lot of people that they hadn't had otherwise. And so it's, and actually we also have a special appearance in the film by Terry Farrell who played. Oh, uh, yeah. Dax. yeah. She's in the film as well, which is super exciting and wonderful. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're really excited to see what happens with it. We're sending it out to festivals now and um, it'll be available kind of once it's gone through the festival circuit, but oh, good. the film's called every morning and people can find more information by following my production company, social media, which is called space time productions to the shock <laughs> of no one. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that boy, I want to watch that. That, that's fascinating. So before before we wrap up, because so, we want to be respectful and mindful of your time, one more thing though we have to ask you about is you have a kids book coming out this fall. Yeah, I do, I do. It's like not even a kids book; it's like a baby's book. It's a board book. <laughs> oh, it <laughs> is. It is. It's oh, called Star Trek: My First Book of Space, um, and it comes out October fourth. Right now, mm-hmm. you know, obviously yeah. supply chain pending. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned, um, you know, Brad, you mentioned the steam aspect. We mm-hmm. actually, and we're releasing it in conjunction with another book, which is uh, Star Trek: My First Book of Colors, written by my friend oh. Rob Perlman. So nice. combined together, we have the steam book release. Um, obviously it's kids of all ages and it's really um it's it's literally my first book of space it's a board book it's like 11 boards <laughs> 22 <laughs> pages um which is honestly the hardest thing i've ever had to write in my entire life it's like teach science in 22 sentences for the ages of zero to two <laughs> Look, you're going to make a whole lot of parents really happy. Yeah. They get to yeah. read this 
to their little kids. And who's to say that who's to say that middle-aged guys who have adult children might not buy it themselves anyway. That's right. It makes really good stocking stuffers, I'll tell yeah, you that. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And um there's lots of fun so we took kind of like all real images like NASA images oh, nice. and superimposed okay. a bunch of Star Trek art on it. So it really kind of delineates <laughs> There's so many Star Trek Easter eggs in it. So I'm really excited for oh. people. So yes, Star Trek, my first book of space. You can find it October 4th. And it's available for pre-order now as well. Oh, that's so cool. But yeah, that thank is you. Really cool. That is so-, so you have so what do you do in your free time? I'm <laughs> I play Mass Effect. <laughs> okay. Jason, again, that's a video game. Yeah. Okay. Look, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll start studying on the game. If you start studying on the Higgs boson and we'll compare notes in like a month. Okay. 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 Sucker. You're not going to see. Yeah. You're not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron's dying I, inside. I've watched, I've watched Big Bang Theory. I've heard of the Higgs boson. So. No, no, it's fine. I just don't honestly know which challenges I, I like is worse. Cause on oh, Jason's hand, is so much worse. Cause I actually have an interest in the Higgs boson. He yeah. has had no interest yeah. in video games. I was going to say, so. and then he has to drive the Mako around planet. So yeah. good luck. I, yeah. I, you know, when I honestly, when I had kids, it's just at some point, I just, no longer right had the time and yeah. devoted and i never i mean okay i i have been known to dip into star trek timelines uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and brad's flashing me the loser symbol and it's 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 it apparently that's his word for irony um and uh, and, uh I've, iPod, my, i'm kettle i know one, yeah one of my one of my dear friends uh aaron he is like hardcore like he just buys all the stuff right yeah. like gets up in the morning and he's been pushing me for a year and a half to get back in and it's like there's just only so much i know there is only so much time it was funny i started streaming on twitch and i'm gonna be getting back into it oh, into the next really oh so, yeah huh? i huh? took a break while life was happening but um but i'm looking forward to getting back into it but when i was streaming back in 2020 Everyone was like, you should play Star Trek Online. You should play Star Trek Online. Play Star Trek Online. Why aren't you playing Star Trek Online? <laughs> With good reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a big crossover demographic. Um, and I hate I hate MMOs. I don't like strangers oh. in my video game because sure. um, I'm there mm-hmm. for my own story. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, I have a hard time with it. But I will say the Star Trek Online community has been awesome. And like oh, they good. coached me live on stream for like how to get going oh. into it. Nice. And honestly, I love the single player stories in it. They're so mm-hmm. fun. Um, they released one with Kate Mulgrew as Captain Janeway and oh, wow. Admiral Janeway and yeah, a whole yeah, other yeah. storyline. And it was just, del- I embarrassed this quick anecdote. I embarrassed myself. I was just playing. I didn't stream this. I was just playing it by myself. But there's a point where you go into a space, but you get like the mission starts where Admiral Janeway gets you on comms and is like, I need your help. And I'm like, girl, I am here for you. Like, <laughs> this is where do I need to be and when? I go, I do the space battle. And then she's like, come meet me in my ready room. And you get to beam aboard Voyager. And you, she meets you in the transporter room and you start walking through. And I'm so nervous. I actually double tapped forward, which means you do like a forward somersault. <laughs> on the bridge of Voyager in front of Admiral Janeway. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, Jason, Jason, was I played a lot oh, of STO, a lot. Awesome. And, awesome. and you know it, and for those that play know it, you know, you can, you can buy ships, you can outfit them the way you want it. So you could buy a retrofitted NX-01 and play that if you wanted. Wow. I'm a, I'm a, 
DS9 junkie, so I had to buy a Defiant. But <laughs> my favorite ship was when I when I first started playing, it's when they were giving away the Enterprise for free, the original one, 1701. And oh. that's still my favorite ship, even though it's a, it's a light. You know, it's a light ship as opposed to some of the crazy stuff you have out there. So, yeah, yeah I could I could talk STO for hours yeah. again. So, so, so uh, I contributed something. I could talk about Voltron and STO. Uh, look, you <laughs> so, know what? Thanks to thanks to Aaron. Look, I'm going to start watching your Twitter your your Twitch feed when you're back on Mass Effect. Uh, yeah. Brad, I'm going to buy you and send you Aaron's book for toddlers so that you can start working for the Higgs boson. You know full well it's already on pre-order. I know so. it's already on pre-order. <laughs> Brad has an issue. Aaron, yeah. thank you so much. This has been such a delight to talk to you. We, we so appreciate you taking time. Yeah. yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, as Brad would say, Aaron, thank you again so much for spending time with us. Um, you know, we get to talk to a lot of truly interesting people, courtesy of of this podcast, and and many of them are really just good people. Um, but but your comments, both during and outside of our recording for the interview, um, really really got to us. Uh, the world is a better place because of people like you. The world will continue to be a better place because of scientists like you who actively work to bring women and others into the STEM fields. With that, let's just briefly wander over to the GM corner. Since I can't ask Brad what he's been reading or watching, I can just say a word about what's been on my desk. Uh, it's it's been busy as you can imagine given it's just me past few weeks have been quite busy for both of us at work that said i have had an awful lot of star trek on the brain and since we just interviewed dr aaron mcdonald uh it's it's worth just talking about star trek uh man oh man everyone is there a lot of trek coming your way first and foremost and most importantly uh as this episode drops we are two episodes in of season three of star trek lower decks and they are having a strong start if you have not seen the opening sequence of episode two watch it uh, never has there been such blatant role-playing in star trek what a a glorious thing kapla uh looking ahead this is the first of a four-episode arc for us with Dyson Mind, doubling down on Star Trek as it intersects with role-playing, as it intersects with science, as it informs leadership, as it informs entertainment. On behalf of Brad and myself, as always, thanks for listening. Be well. Stay well. We will see you next week. <laughs>